0: Sometimes Christians are accused of using words that nobody understands, and sometimes that can be a fair criticism. Our boys have a CD at home with a song called Big Words That End in Shun, and there are lots of them. Revelation, substitution, salvation, propitiation, justification, imputation, big words that end in shun. In the case of that song, it's actually helpful because it explains what those words mean. But sometimes in church, we're guilty of using words without explaining them. So how about the word glory? We use that word in church. But it's pretty common outside the church too, especially in the world of sport. I have a book at home called Six Glorious Years. It's about the Northern Ireland football team. Maybe you didn't realize they had even one glorious year, but they actually had six, probably never to be repeated. Between 1980 and 1986, they qualified for two World Cups. It's not bad for quite a small country, around two million people. I also have a video at home, which unfortunately I can no longer watch, called The Goal and the Glory. It's about the year that Dundee United won the Scottish Cup. Now I mention these things not to try and interest you in rubbish football teams, but to show you that even among rubbish football teams, glory is a reasonably common word. But what does it mean? I suppose in the world of sport, we use it when someone has extreme success, notable success they show that they're superior in some way. And so they earn admiration and praise for themselves, at least for a few days or even weeks, or in the case of the Northern Ireland football team, for six whole years. But what do we mean in the church when we talk about glory? Specifically, what do we mean when we use the word glory in relation to God? Well, we could explain it like this. God's glory is the visible and active manifestation of his nature, presence, and power. Now, I realize that's a bit of a mouthful, but it's worth getting a grasp on because it will help us this morning. God's glory is the visible and active manifestation of his nature, presence, and power. In other words, God's glory is not something that we give to him. God's glory is something that he already has. He is a glorious person. Glorious by nature. Glorious in his holiness and his power and his wisdom and his love. Glory is really a word that belongs to God. So, talking about glory in sport or in politics, that's really just a pale illustration of what we mean by God's glory. In comparison to God's superiority, every other kind of glory is really quite pathetic. And then because God is glorious, he's constantly and completely worthy of being glorified by us. Because he's glorious, he's worthy of our praise and adoration and worship. We glorify him because he is glorious. He does glorious things. He manifests or displays His glory in this world. He's doing it constantly through nature. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. God's creation displays the fact that He is worthy of worship. But God displays His glory in even greater ways than nature. And that's what we're going to think about this morning. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and in the church Bible we will find that on page 1159, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we'll pick up from where we left off last week, so chapter 3 verse 6, and I'll read through to the end of chapter 3. In verse 6, Paul says, He, that's God, has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that condemns man is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day... When Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit." This is God's Word. And I think this part of God's Word is especially important for us. Because you and I live in a time when Christianity does not appear very glorious. Certainly, the world around us doesn't see any glory in what we're doing here this morning. And maybe sometimes you're tempted to think that you're part of something that's a bit drab and dull. It's just church again. Maybe it seems sometimes like all the glory is going on in sports stadiums or in the X factor. But Paul says, no, let me show you where the real glory is. And to do that, Paul first of all goes back to some genuine glory days of the past. And he goes back to those days in order to show that we live in the days of greater glory. In verse 6, Paul mentions a new covenant. That means there must have been an old one. And the old one Paul has in mind is the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. That's recorded for us in the book of Exodus. After Moses led the Israelites out of Egypt, God brought his people to a mountain in the desert. And we're told that as the people were camped around the bottom of the mountain, the mountain itself was enveloped in thick cloud. And in the midst of thunder and lightning, there was a very loud trumpet blast. The whole situation was so intense that everyone in the Israelite camp trembled. God was displaying his glory. Then we're told Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. God called Moses to the top of the mountain, and there he gave Moses his law. Can you imagine what that must have been like? To stand there watching Moses slowly climbing up into that cloud of smoke and thunder. Imagine what it must have been like for Moses himself. And the law that God presented to Moses was part of a covenant with Israel. The law expressed God's will, and the Israelites were to obey it. That was the covenant. That's what Paul's referring to when he talks about the letter in verse 6. He's talking about that written law given on Mount Sinai and inscribed on two stone slabs. No other nation on earth had such a privilege. Through the law, God showed them what he was like. He showed them how to relate to him. It was a glorious thing. It was a display of God's glory. But look what Paul says about it in verse 6. He says, the letter kills. The law itself was holy and good. But the reason it killed was because the people couldn't and wouldn't keep it. So they were condemned by it, good as it was. The old covenant was glorious. It revealed God. But it pronounced a death sentence on sinful men and women. And so later, through the prophet Jeremiah, God promised a new covenant. He would write his law, he said, on people's hearts. He would change them on the inside so that they would want to obey his law and so that they would be able to obey it. Those of you who are here on Wednesday night, that's what Sam Rotman was talking about, being changed on the inside. That was part of the new covenant God promised in the Old Testament. He promised that even while the old covenant was still in place. This new covenant would bring life instead of condemnation and death. And so the new covenant would be even more glorious than the old one. It would be even more glorious because it would display even more of God's glory. It would show that he's not only a holy God, he's also the God who makes his people holy. And long after Jeremiah's prophecy, Jesus Christ announced that he would bring about this new covenant through his death. It would be the new covenant in his blood. And his Holy Spirit would do the new covenant work of changing men and women's hearts. Here in our passage, Paul is writing after Jesus' death and resurrection. So his message is about the new relationship we can have with God because of Jesus. Or as Paul puts it, he is a minister of this new covenant. Paul is saying, don't hark back to the glory days of the past. You are living in the glory days. Yes, the past was glorious. There's no denying that. But you live in the days of greater glory. Through Jesus, God has done a greater and more glorious thing. He has not only told you what he wants and what he's like, he sent his Spirit to enable you to do what he wants and to make you more like him. In verses 7 to 11, Paul makes three comparisons between the old and the new. Three times, Paul says, the old was glorious, but the new is even more glorious. So much so that we could say, the glory of the old compared with the new is like a 30-watt bulb compared to the midday sun. Look at verse 7. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, fading though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious?" Exodus tells us that when Moses came down from the mountain, carrying the stone tablets inscribed by the finger of God, when he came down, his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. Moses' face was displaying a little bit of God's glory. And we're told that when the Israelites saw Moses' face, they were afraid to come near him. That must have been an amazing thing to witness and experience. But Paul says, Will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? The word ministry is referring to everything connected to a covenant, its commands, its power, and even those who oversee the covenant. Paul says, If the ministry of that old covenant was glorious, and it was, how much more glorious will the ministry of the new covenant be? The new covenant that's overseen not by Moses, but by God's Holy Spirit. Verse 9, If the ministry that condemns man is glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. Righteousness means right standing with God. The old covenant was glorious, but it couldn't make you truly in the right with God. But the new covenant brings righteousness. Through faith in Jesus, we are declared in the right with God. Our sin is not counted against us. Jesus has paid for it. God has nothing against us. Verse 11, if what was fading away came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? A better translation would be, if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? That's a better translation because Paul is not saying the old covenant started out glorious, but then its glory slowly faded away. What Paul is saying is the Old Covenant had glory, but it was only temporary. It was always intended to be temporary. It was there to point to the greater glory to come in Jesus Christ. And when Christ came, that glorious Old Covenant was brought to an end. It didn't just fade away. It was replaced by the New Covenant in Christ's blood. As Christians, it's easy for us to focus on the negatives of our own time and place. The difficulties, the opposition, and the apathy that's all around us. Maybe sometimes we wished we lived in another time and place, the good old days. Paul's message to the Corinthians and to us is realize how privileged you are. You are new covenant people. You're not under the law written on stone tablets. The law that can only bring condemnation. It can only bring condemnation because you haven't got the power to keep it. Paul says to us, You live in the days when God not only makes his will known, but he also sends his spirit to write it on our hearts, to give us the desire and the ability to obey it. We live in the time when men and women can be made right with God through faith in Jesus. This is the time when faith, that faithful men and women in the Old Testament were longing for. and We're living in it. We live in the days of greater glory. In the Old Testament, David prayed, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Maybe we need to pray that this morning because we have such a great salvation. It's what the Old Testament believers were waiting for. This is a great time to be alive. Now, Paul understands, of course, that there is opposition and apathy around us. Not everyone sees the greater glory of the new covenant. And Paul explains this by saying we live in the days of veiled and unveiled people. This has nothing to do with the kind of veil you might see in Walsall Town Center. Paul has different veils in mind. Look at verse 12. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Paul is going to go on to explain why it gives him great hope to live in the days of the New Covenant. In verse 12 he says, We are very bold but he doesn't get to that until verses 16 to 18. In these verses, he describes life behind a veil. Life behind a veil involves blindness to God's glory revealed in Jesus. In verse 13, Paul mentions Moses' veil, and then he goes on to talk about another veil that people wear. We've already mentioned that when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And when the Israelites saw Moses' radiant face, they were afraid to come near him. Exodus goes on to tell us that Moses developed a way of dealing with his radiant face. He started wearing a veil. Apparently, he took his veil off only when he went into God's presence and when he told the people what God had said to him. Apart from that, Moses kept his face veiled. Why? Well, Paul tells us in verse 13, Moses would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Again, instead of translating that was fading away, it's better to read it as was being brought to an end. The point is, Moses' face was radiating God's glory. But he veiled his face to show that there was greater glory still to come. He didn't want people to be too fixated on the old covenant glory that was on his face. Because that glory was only temporary. So wearing the veil wasn't just to keep people from being scared of Moses. It was a way of teaching that this was not the greatest glory. Moses' face was shining with glorious Old Covenant glory. But one day, that glory would give way to even greater New Testament glory. And so the glory in Moses' face was like a 30 watt bulb. The glory to come would be like the midday sun. Moses didn't want the Israelites to focus on the 30 watt bulb. Paul's described Moses' veil, and now he describes a different kind of veil, a veil on people's hearts. And Paul is mainly thinking of the Jews of his own day here. It's easy to get confused because Paul says they have the same veil as Moses. What he means is it has the same effect. The veil on Moses' face prevented people from seeing God's glory. And the veil on Jewish hearts prevents them from seeing God's glory. Two different veils, but the same effect. The first five books of the Bible are known sometimes as the law or the books of Moses. And Paul says the Jews of his day can sit and listen every week to those books being read but they don't truly understand them. They don't see that the true glory of the old covenant was that it pointed forward to the new covenant. Paul is saying that these men and women are spiritually blind. They're missing the glory of the old covenant and the new. And of course, Paul knows all of this from personal experience. He himself had sat week after week Listening to the books of Moses, studying the books of Moses, but he didn't get it. When he heard about Jesus, he tried to wipe out Jesus' followers. He didn't see that his beloved books of Moses were pointing to Jesus. And then, when Paul did become a follower of Jesus, he had the experience of preaching about Jesus in the synagogues. He stood up and he explained how Jesus fulfilled all those scriptures. He explained how all of God's promises are yes in Christ. That's what he preached. But more often than not, he got beat up for preaching it. Or on a good day, he got run out of the city for preaching it. The men and women Paul preached to had the same veil he used to have. And he says in verse 15, only in Christ is it taken away. Paul says, I can preach clearly and powerfully, but only Christ, working by his Holy Spirit, can take the veil from people's hearts. Now, I don't imagine that very many of us here know any Jews. But it's not hard for us to see that Paul's point has a much wider application. Many of us can look back to the days when we lived life behind a veil, We heard about Jesus, but we didn't get it. Maybe we sat in church and we heard about Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Jesus. We heard about how God has displayed his glory by bringing salvation through the cross. But it didn't move us an inch. It didn't stir us in any way. It didn't come alive for us. We might have understood the words that the preacher was saying, but we didn't see any glory in it, nothing for us to get excited about, nothing that we needed to respond to. But then one day, it all became clear to us, just like a veil had been taken away from our hearts and our minds. It's also true that some of us have never had that veil lifted from us. Maybe you've heard about Jesus hundreds of times, but you've never seen anything glorious about him. Nothing that would bring you to your knees in surrender and worship. Now part of that may be because I don't do justice to the glory of the message. I'm quite sure that I don't do it justice. But even with the weakest preaching, some glimmers of glory will shine through. So, how can you sit there unmoved? Paul says it's because you have a veil over your heart. But that veil can never be used as an excuse. It doesn't take away your responsibility to glorify God by giving your life to Jesus. You must ask him to take the veil away from your heart. Ask him to show you what you're missing. That's what Paul moves on to in verses 16 to 18. He talks about life unveiled. Freedom from condemnation and transformation into Christ's likeness. Look at verse 16. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Once that veil is taken away, once we see the glory of the new covenant in Jesus' blood, we begin a life of freedom and transformation. Those are the two words Paul uses. First, in verse 17, he says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Paul has already said that the Holy Spirit is the one who oversees or administers the new covenant. The new covenant was sealed or ratified by Christ's death in our place. And we receive the benefits of it through faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit administers those benefits to us. He comes and He lives within us, He assures us of God's forgiveness. He gives us the power to obey God's commands. Jesus' work sealed the new covenant. The Spirit administers the new covenant. That's why Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He means life under Christ's new covenant means freedom for us. But what does he mean when he talks about freedom? I think he means freedom from the condemnation that comes from failing to keep God's law. Back in verse 6, Paul said the letter kills, meaning the old covenant brings death, because people won't or can't keep God's law. But under Christ's new covenant, there is freedom from God's condemnation. Now that doesn't mean we can live how we like. It doesn't mean we can ignore God's commands. It means the Spirit enables us to obey God's commands. We've seen that long before Christ came, God promised there would be a new covenant. We quoted earlier from Jeremiah, and through Ezekiel God said, I will put my Spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So, the new covenant does not mean we can forget about obeying God. It means God gives us the ability to obey Him. But the main point here is the freedom that we have in Christ. In the book of Romans, Paul says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free from the burden and the slavery of forever trying and failing to earn God's favor. We have his favor because we belong to Jesus. God is delighted with us because we belong to Jesus. Religion is all about trying to earn our way with God. Religion is all about what we do, and so there's no freedom in it because we can never do enough. We're always coming short. We can never have assurance of God's favor. If you want to know whether someone is a religious person, ask them if they have any assurance about their standing with God. And a religious person will have to say no. They might have certain hopes for themselves, but they cannot have assurance. Assurance. Because as far as they're concerned, being right with God all depends on what they do. And they can never know if they've done enough. But when we come to Jesus, we're freed from that kind of life. We can have assurance. Because our salvation depends on what Jesus has already done. We sang earlier, my sins have been paid in full. What you complete is completely done. That's the freedom Jesus brings. If you've been a Christian for a while, it's easy to forget the blessing of our freedom. It's easy, too, to forget what life used to be like before you came to Jesus. Living with the uncertainty of not knowing where you stand with God. God shows His glory through the freedom he brings in Jesus. Finally, in verse 18, Paul says, life with Christ is a life of transformation. We, who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The NIV has a footnote saying that the word reflect could be translated contemplate. And that's the better option. Paul is saying we with unveiled faces all contemplate the Lord's glory. So here's what happens. We turn to the Lord, the spiritual veil is taken away, and we see God's glory revealed in Jesus. We recognize that Jesus and what he has done are glorious. And Paul says as we contemplate or fix our attention on Jesus, we are being transformed into his likeness. We're becoming more like him. Our thinking and our behavior are being transformed to be like his. Now, obviously, Jesus is not physically standing in front of us. We can't see him with our eyes. Neither could Paul or his readers. But you and I see the Lord's glory when we hear the good news about Jesus. And we contemplate his glory by fixing our attention on him. When men and women looked at Moses' glory, no doubt it was amazing. But it didn't change them. But when you and I fix our attention on Jesus, it transforms us into Jesus' image. Literally, Paul says, from glory to glory. We see God's glory in Jesus, then our own lives begin to display some of that glory in this world. And eventually, the day will come when we see God's glory fully. We will be fully transformed into his likeness. That will happen when Jesus returns to this earth, and we will share in his glory. All of us like to have practical things to take away from the Bible. Well, how about this? According to Paul, there is nothing more practical than contemplating the glory of God. The glory of God shown in the person and work of Jesus. There's nothing more practical because the result of that contemplation is transformation. I could stand here and give you a list of assignments to do this week, a list of good deeds for you to work on, but that wouldn't transform you. But fixing your attention on Jesus, that does transform you. When we fix our attention on him, we realize the glory of his new covenant. Because of his death in our place, We are in a right standing with God. We're forgiven and accepted by God. We're free from condemnation. And as we let that truth percolate in our minds and our hearts, it does begin to change us. Our attitudes and our thinking and our priorities and then eventually our behavior. And so our lives begin to display some of God's glory. And the great thing is, there's always room for more transformation. So there's always more to be gained by contemplating the Lord's glory. In a few moments, we're going to do that as we gather around the Lord's table together. We will be contemplating his glory shown through the cross. But first we're going to do it in another way by singing together about what Christ has done. We're going to sing, Yes, finished, the Messiah dies.